On this beautiful and sacred Easter weekend, surely no doctrine will be the subject of more sermons, nor the object of more praise than that of the atoning sacrifice and the literal resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it should be at Easter and at every other season of the year, for no doctrine in the Christian canon is more important to all mankind than the doctrine of the resurrection of the Son of God. Through him came the resurrection of all men, women, and children who have ever been or ever will be born into the world. In spite of the great importance we place upon the resurrection in our doctrine, perhaps many of us may not yet have fully glimpsed its spiritual significance and eternal grandeur. If we had, we would marvel at its beauty, as it did Jacob, the brother of Nephi, and we would shudder at the alternative he would have faced had he not received this divine gift. Jacob wrote, O oh, the mission of God, his mercy and grace, for behold, if the flesh should rise no more, and our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. Surely the resurrection is the center of every Christian's faith. It is the greatest of all the miracles performed by the Savior of the world. Without it, we are indeed left hopeless. Let me borrow the words of Paul. If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is our preaching vain, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. If Christ be not raised up, your faith is dead, or is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Go back with me to those final scenes in the Holy Land. The end of our Lord's mortal life was near. He had healed the sick, raised the dead, and expounded the scriptures, including those prophecies of his own death and resurrection. He said to his apostles, his disciples, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. There in Jerusalem, the Sadducees accosted and questioned him concerning the resurrection. They had conspired to trap him, but he taught them the simple truths of the living gospel. Have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, he asked? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Later, as they met to celebrate the Passover, Jesus and his apostles partook of the sacramental emblems that he initiated to the, in this Last Supper together and then walked to the Mount of Olives. Always the teacher to the very end, he continued his discourse on the theme of the sacrificial lamb. 
He told them he would be smitten and that they would be scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And after I am risen again, he said, I will go before you unto, into Galilee. In the hours that followed, he sweat great drops of blood, was scourged by the very leaders who claimed to be his custodians of his law, and was crucified in the company of thieves. It was as King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon prophesied, He shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. He cometh unto his own, that salvation might come unto the children of men, and even after all this they shall consider him a man, and say that he hath a devil, and shall scourge him and crucify him. We are indebted to the prophet Alma for our knowledge of the full measure of his sufferings. He shall go forth, suffering pain and affliction and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pain, pains and the sufferings of his people. And he shall take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death, which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Think of it. When his body was taken from the cross and hastily placed in a borrowed tomb, he, the sinless Son of God, had already taken upon him not only the sins and temptations of every human soul who will repent, but all of our sickness and grief and pain of every kind. He suffered these afflictions as we, as we suffer them according to the flesh, but he suffered them all. He did this to perfect his mercy and his ability to lift us above every earthly trial. But there remains one more set of chains to be broken before the Atonement could be complete, the bands of death. The prophets of the Old Testament had taught that the resurrection would be certain and would be universal. Also, the Book of Mormon prophets taught the doctrine of the Revelation with great plainness. Nephi wrote, Behold, they will crucify him. And after he is laid in the sepulcher for the space of three days, he shall rise from the dead with healings in his wings. And all those who shall believe on his name shall be saved in the kingdom of God. And Samuel the Lamanite prophesied to the Nephites, For behold, he surely must die, that salvation may come. Yea, it behooveth him, and becometh expedient that he dieth, to bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, that thereby men may be brought into the presence of the Lord. Enoch was shown in a vision the day of the coming of the Son of Man. And we read, And the Lord said unto Enoch, Look, and he looked and beheld the Son of Man lifted up on the cross after the manner of men. And he heard a loud voice, and the heavens were veiled, and all the creature, creations of God mourned, 
and the earth groaned, and the rocks were rent, and the saints arose, and were crowned at the right hand of the Son of Man with crowns of glory. And as many of the spirits as were in prison came forth and stood on the right hand of God, and the remainder were reserved in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day. As the dawn of that third day was beginning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary had come to the sepulcher in which his lifeless body had been laid. Earlier the chief priests and the Pharisees had gone to Pilate and persuaded him to place a guard at the door of the sepulcher lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. But two mighty angels had rolled the stone from the door of the tomb, and the would-be guards had fled in terror at the sight. When the women came to the tomb, they found it open and empty. The angels had tarried to tell them the greatest news ever to fall on human ears. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. The resurrection of Jesus was followed immediately by the resurrection of other righteous souls. Matthew records that the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. In the days that followed his resurrection, the Lord appeared unto many. He displayed his five special wounds to them. He walked and talked and ate with them, as if to prove beyond a doubt that a resurrected body is indeed a physical body of tangible flesh and bones. Later he ministered to the Nephites, whom he commanded to arise and come forth unto me, that you may thrust your hands into my side, and also that you may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel, and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. And the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side, and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do, going forth one by one, until they had all gone forth, and did see with their eyes, and did feel with their hands, and did know of a surety, and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. It is the responsibility and joy of all men and women everywhere to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have testified, and to have the spiritual witness of his divinity. It is the right and blessing of all who humbly seek to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit bearing witness of the Father and His resurrected Son. As one called and ordained to bear witness of the name of Jesus Christ to all the world, I testify at this Easter season that He lived. He has a glorified, immortal body of flesh and bones. He is the only begotten Son of the Father in the flesh. He is the Savior, the light, and life of the world. Following his resurrection and death, he appeared as a resurrected being to Mary, to Peter, to Paul, and many others. He showed himself to the Nephites. He has shown himself to Joseph Smith, the boy prophet, and to many others in our dispensation. 
This is his church. He leads it today through his prophet, Ezra Taft Benson. Of this I testify. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, I rejoice in the privilege of being with you this afternoon in another general session of conference. We have unitedly come here to worship the Lord and to receive instruction and counsel from our leaders. We have much for which to be thankful, and my heart is filled with appreciation and gratitude for the rich blessings from the Lord which are mine in serving with the wonderful missionaries and members of the Church in Asia. His work is growing and prospering there as well as throughout the world. As Jesus approached that fateful hour when he would give himself as the supreme sacrifice for all mankind, he asked those who challenged him, What think ye of Christ? I have pondered many times that searching inquiry as it applies in my life and to all of us in this time of history. I wonder, as the register of our lives is indelibly written and from which we will be judged, what the heavenly record will say to us in this generation of time. Do we fully accept him as the only begotten Son of God sent to earth to redeem the world? King Benjamin, as Nephi recorded, so testified. We read from Helaman, Oh, remember, remember, my sons, the words which King Benjamin spake unto his people. Yea, remember that there is no other way nor means whereby man can be saved, only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ who shall come. Yea, remember that he cometh to redeem the world. The Lamb of God came to earth to redeem and to teach. He taught the blessed law of love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. The Holy One of Israel sought no earthly personal gain or glory. He strove only to serve his Father and to show forth eternal love to the children of God on earth. The Messiah caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the diseased to be healed, the hungry to be fed. Every act of his life was one of deep inner love, compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. The poor and the downtrodden continuously had his benevolence, and as he came to the end of his mortal life, his heart was full of sympathy for those who had caused his crucifixion to be done. He prayed to the Father, Forgive them. They know not what they do. As the dark and dreadful days in the world's history came to pass, Jesus was betrayed apprehended, bound, and led away captive to answer the trumped-up charges against him. They taunted him with false witnesses who came forth to challenge him. They smited him, ridiculed him, tormented him. Finally, blindfolded and scourged, and in brutish manner, he was mocked. His adversaries sought to take his life. No other judgmental decree would satisfy them. They accepted full responsibility for his blood on them and their children. They led him bound before Pilate, who found in him no fault at all. Then he was taken before Herod, who likewise found nothing of which to condemn him. With envy and malice, he was once again brought before Pilate. For the third time, Pilate found no justifiable reason to declare him guilty. He offered a substitute and to set Jesus free. 
the hideous cries from those who feared the Son of God called forth to crucify him. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God so prophesied by the prophets for centuries had come. Quietly and without further utterance in his own defense, he gave his life as a ransom for us that through him and by him we might have blessed immortality to be resurrected, united body and spirit. He further provided the way that through obedience to his commandments and receiving the sacred ordinances, we might have eternal life. His life was an evidence of his consciousness for all of his father's children. Again, I ask the question, what think ye of Christ? I bear you my solemn testimony and stand by the side of the disciple Peter, who, when asked the direct and pointed question, But whom say ye that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I witness it unto you that he is the divine Savior of the world, the promised Messiah. I reiterate the bold utterance of the disciple, Thou art truly the Christ, the Son of God. And I beckon to all to come unto Christ and receive his blessings and the blessings of heaven which await those who will keep his commandments and endure to the end. I certify to you that we are led by living prophets today who receive inspiration and revelation from the Lord. I further join my hands with those of Joshua when he said, Choose you this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. The story is told that on one occasion a traveler asked a farmer who was seated in the doorway of his humble cabin. How is the cotton crop going to be this year? To which the farmer replied, There won't be any. I didn't bother to plant it because I was afraid of the boll weevil. Upon hearing this, the traveler asked it further, Well, are you going to ha uh, harvest a big corn crop? It's the same, came the response. I was afraid we wouldn't get enough rain for the kernels to mature. The traveler pursued, At least you will have a good potato harvest. Nope. Not any. I didn't dare plant them because I was afraid of insects. With frustration and somewhat impassioned, the traveler then asked it, Well, what is it that you have planted? Nothing, my good man, came the answer. I'd rather be safe than sorry. <laughs> the response from the farmer is a good example of a false security arising from fear, of an apparent safety resulting from lack of conviction an illusion of security resulting from uncertainty and confusion. A concept of a safe route definitely confused and distorted. Certainly, this is one of the evils which afflicts this generation, the security of not doing, the security of not being. It is the same type of evil that the Savior referred to when he pointed out the uselessness of the unprofitable servant or how useless the fig tree that didn't bear fruit or the light that did not shine, or the salt that had lost its savor. Jesus Christ did not alter concepts in order to make incorrect action compatible with a false sense of reality. He always clarified them in order to eliminate neutrality and ambiguity from individual decisions and to eliminate hypocrisy and deviant paths from individual action, thereby setting forth the basis by which the children of God will be judged. He described things as they were and lived his life as a clear example to us all of how to live, how to act, even saying, for I have given you an example. Today there are many people just as the farmer in our story who are out, out of fear, create within themselves mental scarecrows and eventually end up believing these scarecrows are real and in this manner they base their lives on false principles. It is unimportant to them that their ideas are not true. These ideas are the trenches they dig to defend themselves from fear, the commotion they make to drive away the truth, 
For example, the scarecrow of security, a confused and distorted imitation of true security, provides these people with an illusion with the appearance of truth by which they weigh different situations and act accordingly in life, using as their yardstick precept totally apart from reality. In the face of this distorted understanding of the truth, Latter-day Saints who have received the assignment through revelation to take upon you the name of Christ and speak the truth in sovereignness could appear to be proud and lacking humility to those who hold this incorrect concept. This is because faithful members of the Church are filled with a deep assurance that comes from a firm testimony of the Gospel, a sure knowledge of the divinity of the work in which we have embarked, received through revelation from the Holy Ghost. This assurance, this firm conviction to stand at witnesses of God at all time and in all things and in all places that ye may be in even until death, could appear as boastful pride before those accustomed to using mental scarecrows. But it is not that way. To confuse pride with safety and vanity with testimony shows lack of understanding by those who have not allowed the tempering of the Spirit to enter their hearts, who have not had the experience Nephi did when he said, I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did, he did visit me, and he did soften my heart that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my father. So in most cases, the problem is not with the sower, but in the soil where the seed is planted. And very often, those who are insecure challenge the self-confident person, not necessarily because of his self-confidence, but because by comparison, their own insecurity becomes evident. The important point is not to look for causes of insecurity, but rather to look for reasons why faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ have such a deep assurance in their lives. A powerful example of this is the Prophet Joseph Smith when in his own words he analyzed and searched for an explanation for the reasons of the persecution he endured. Yet at the same time he testified to the truthfulness of his vision. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that, I had seen a vision yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, revealing me, and speaking all manner of evils against me by falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision. And who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? What I have seen a vision, I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny or near dare to do it. At least I knew that by so doing I, could, I would offend God and come under condemnation. I had not got my mind satisfied so far as the sectarian world was concerned. What better way could express the reality of his vision than I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. From this powerful and firm testimony, this knowledge from on high, came the assurance as portrayed by the words of the prophet. How could it be otherwise since Joseph Smith had the sure knowledge that he knew that God knew what he knew? Is this pride? Definitely not. This is assurance that comes from knowing. This is a sure knowledge which through the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. This is the assurance found in the lives of faithful Latter-day Saints coming from a change brought about by the power of the Spirit, that which prompts them to bear testimony of the divinity of the Word. It is that same conversion, that same power, that same Spirit which Alma experienced when he, when he called the people to repentance. In his search to remove scarecrows from the people, he said, Do ye not suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. And how do ye suppose that I know of their surety? Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true. For the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. 
The world may claim that this is pride, this is pride, but members of the Lord's kingdom, those who do not live by borrowed light, those who have gained a testimony for themselves that this work is true, call it assurance. It is the testimony, it is the, it is the true knowledge that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind, which gives us the courage, the strength, and the commitment to testify of Christ and his gospel, regardless of circumstances or external factors. But for the weak, the unsure, of those who question that the Latter-day Saints are Christians, these circumstances and external factors prove to be more important to them than learning of Christ and gaining a testimony. The assurance seen in faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the result of being doers of the word, word and not just hearers only. It is the result of striving to live by every word which proceeded forth out of the mouth of God, instead of talking of God, yet not conforming action to his word, as do those who are insecure. It is the assurance, the firm testimony of thousands of missionaries, missionaries who are occupied with all their heart, mind, might, and strength in serving their fellow men as contrasted with millions who are preoccupied with worldly involvements and give only lip service. It is important then that our determination to proclaim the gospel in our desire to clarify the thinking of confused and insecure people in our decision to be part of that great work of our Father in heaven to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men, that we should remember as King Benjamin admonished us to always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness, and humble yourselves even in the depths of humility, calling on the name of the Lord daily and standing steadfastly in the faith, since no one can assist, assist in this work except he shall be humble. There is no guarantee of a great reward for anyone. There is no way that any of God's children can be assured of blessings from the Most High unless this reward is a result of worthy action in our lives, and the blessings are the fruits of obedience to the law on which they are predicated. Therefore, since we do have the truth, it is fundamental that we do not be boastful about it. Our pride, if it should exist at all, along with our eternal gratitude, should arise from how we make use of that truth and the manner in which we applied it in our lives. We can pass through this mortal existence listening attentively and passionately to the best of instruction, or we can be spectators watching the expounding of great and profound principles without improvement, unless we allow those principles to crystallize within us through application in daily living. Mankind is saved only in direct proportion to gaining knowledge, but the simple accumulation of facts or realities will in no way save them if they do not possess wisdom. Wisdom is not to be proclaimed or exhibited, but rather it is to be sought, to be treasured. We need to pray for it and then express it by living a worthy life according to the knowledge obtained. Change and the development of talents and hidden qualities in each of us are produced by putting into practice the knowledge obtained. What is most important then in what we do with our lives? For faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the truth is not an end in itself. Their lives are a constant quest, an example of a dynamic relation between truth and knowledge with living and being. As President Joseph Smith said, pure intelligence comprises not only knowledge, but also the power to properly apply that knowledge. In majestic clarity, the Savior declared concerning this subject, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the, doctrine, of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. It is from this principle that Latter-day Saints receive the strength of their testimonies, the assurance of their convictions, as they practice what they preach in their daily lives. To all those faithful Latter-day Saints who share their testimonies concerning the truthfulness of this work in the four corners of the earth, I wish to add mine with the assurance that I know that God knows, I know, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the power to administer the saving ordinances, to crown the efforts, 
of, those, of all those who, through an obedient and faithful life, thread the path to come to unto Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. On behalf of the other general authorities, I would like to welcome Brother Robert Sackley and Lionel Kendrick into our circle. We welcome them with all of our love and affection. I have prayed for the blessings of heaven to be upon my efforts in speaking to you today. Matthew's New Testament account includes these words of the Savior. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and by their fruits ye shall know them, whether they be good or evil. As Michael Watson was just reading the annual report confirming the continued growth and expansion of the Church throughout the world, with an increasing number of new converts making possible more stakes, more wards, with their increasing number of priesthood holders and women in their organizations, and our growing number of missionaries making possible more new missions, I felt a burning in my soul, a feeling of divine affirmation and direction of this work as it comes forth out of obscurity. <clears throat> this is the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it does indeed bring forth fruit worthy of Him. Its growth will continue unabated because of the faith of its members and, <clears throat> and because more men and women are discovering the golden threads of truth, hope, and salvation as they learn gospel principles and are nourished by the good word of God to keep them in the right way relying upon the merits of Christ, who was the author of their faith. Outside of our Church, many watch in amazement at this consistent expansion in spite of popular secularism. We hope they may one day know of the joy and the happiness available to the saints who hold fast to the iron rod of gospel truth, which they treasure as dearly as life itself and which they maintain by their abiding faith. We see the light of the gospel continuing to dawn like a gentle new day upon previous intolerable darkness. It continues to spread out into new frontiers, confirming the revelation to Joseph the prophet that the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape, and all hearts shall be penetrated. The gospel breathes a new life and a new hope and a new and unknown holiness into a troubled world. This we see, and we see the work grow and increase because more and more irresistible as it spreads like the gentleness of the sea that refreshes the shore upon which it flows. Witnessing this miracle continuing to unfold today, I liken it to the account in Acts where Peter and the other apostles were preaching of Jesus, and the high priest council and the Sadducees tried to refrain them from speaking and teaching of Christ by putting them in prison. But an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, and again they went to the temple to teach the people. Gamaliel, a Pharisee and doctor of the law, halted the council when they would again cast the apostles in prison, saying, Refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them again, they commanded that they should not speak the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. 
and true to their callings as special witnesses of Christ, the apostles went daily in the temple, and in every house they continued to teach and preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The early apostles fearlessly continued to teach the principles of the gospel, as we do today, calling upon mankind to believe in the Son of God, our Savior, and to repent, to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins, and to receive the Holy Ghost in preparation to have administered unto them even higher ordinances of the gospel. Those early disciples declared to those seeking truth in plainness that as the Holy Ghost rested upon them, filling their hearts with joy, they would know of the doctrine for themselves, whether it be of God or man. The Spirit of Truth leads men to righteousness, but we must have a desire to seek truth and to take the time to form spiritual habits and respond to spiritual impressions if we are to keep our souls alive. And is not now the time to begin? A person who has developed spirituality may suffer deeply and no frustration, but yet is able to continue in showing forth kindness and love because of a power that rises up <clears throat> from his spiritual base that governs his actions and urges him to speak with a new tongue, as Nephi said, and to be his best despite obstacles and setbacks. My desire is to aid the cause of truth and righteousness, and like the apostles of old, to add my witness of the divinity of Jesus the Christ. Tomorrow is Easter. Christians everywhere will commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though the anniversary date may not be accurate, the Easter season should inspire us to study and reflect upon the infinite and eternal atonement of Christ, the first fruits of them that slept. The resurrection of Jesus from the tomb is the most glorious of all messages to mankind. I believe in Christ. As a Latter-day Saint, I believe in Christ with all my heart. We invite all to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him, declared Moroni, and declare all ungodliness. Without reservation, we declare he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Joseph Smith, the first prophet of this dispensation, wrote, We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. And we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. End of quote. We believe that Christ came into the world to ransom mankind from the temporal and spiritual death brought into the world by the fall of Adam, and that through the shedding of his innocent blood all mankind are raised in immortality, and that those who believe and obey his laws are raised unto eternal life. Salvation is administered on the same terms and conditions in all ages. Must, men must have faith in him, repent of their sins, be baptized in his name, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and remain steadfast to gain life eternal. The Lord God has sent his holy prophets among all men in all ages to declare these things even as he does today. King Benjamin the Book of Mormon prophet was instructed by an angel sent from the Lord to declare unto his people of the coming of the Messiah more than a hundred years before Christ's birth, that they may also be filled with joy. This holy prophet declared, For behold, the time cometh that the Lord omnipotent, who reigneth, 
who was and is from all eternity shall come down from heaven among the children of men, and he shall suffer temptations, pain of body, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. Blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and abominations of his people. And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of all things from the beginning. And lo, he cometh, that salvation might come through faith on his name. But they shall consider him a man, and shall scourge him, and crucify him, and he shall rise the third day from the dead. End of quote. King Benjamin had learned in a vision that Christ would atone for the sins of mankind and judge the world. New Testament narrators who were actual witnesses confirmed King Benjamin's prophetic declarations with this brief statement. Before daylight, the morning following Christ's crucifixion, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, having prepared fresh spices and ointments, went to the tomb of Jesus and found that the stone had been rolled away. Looking in and not finding the body, they hurried to find Peter and the apostles and told them what they had found. Peter and John hastened at once to the tomb. John outran his older companion. Stooping down, he gazed in silent wonder into the empty tomb. Entering, Peter saw the burial clothes lying where the, where the body of Jesus once lay. John followed him, and in spite of fear, there dawned upon them the hope <clears throat> which later would become an absolute knowledge that Christ had indeed risen, but as yet no one had seen him. The two wandering apostles returned to their brethren. Mary had stayed at the tomb and was grieving at the entrance when someone approached. Thinking it was the keeper of the garden, she asked where he had laid her Lord. And Jesus <clears throat> said to her, Mary. Jesus himself was standing before her. But he did not appear as she had known him, for he was now risen and glorified. She, th <clears throat> she then recognized our Lord and must have attempted to embrace him, for he said, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Filled with amazement, she hastened to obey and repented and repeated that glorious message which would give hope through all future ages, and to which she added her personal declaration that she had seen the risen Lord. The debt is paid, the redemption made, the covenant fulfilled. Justice satisfied, the will of God done, wrote President John Taylor. And all power is now given into the hands of the Son of God, he continued. The power of the resurrection, the power of the redemption, and the power of salvation. Hundreds of years before Christ's earthly minister, ministry, the prophet Isaiah, foretelling of the establishment of Zion and Jehovah as the true God, wrote, Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. <clears throat> and with his stripes we are healed. These thoughtful words from a Mormon sacrament hymn express our heartfelt gratitude for our Savior. There was no other good enough 
to pay the price for sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let him let us in. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his works to do. I repeat our Lord's ageless admonition. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Innumerable blessings have been promised to those who are faithful and obedient to God's laws. Once a person is true and obedient to the light and knowledge received, he not only develops the ability to use that which has been given, but the capacity to receive more knowledge as it increases. For he understands and appreciates the gift. People learn obedience by being obedient. We see its fruits. Half-hearted obedience is without its reward. The gospel invites vigorous participation in living its principles. God commands that we serve him with all of our heart, with all of our might, and with all of our strength, and the very best of our intelligence. Our Savior instructs us, Thy vows shall be offered up in righteousness on all days and at all times. If we could feel or were sensitive even in the slightest to the matchless love of our Savior and His willingness to suffer for our individual sins, we would cease procrastination and clean the slate and repent of all of our transgressions. This would mean keeping God's commandments and setting our lives in order, searching our souls and repenting of our sins, large or small. It means loving our neighbor, living an exemplary life, and high on the list, being good husbands and good wives. It means teaching our children by example and precept to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. It means being honest in our affairs and serving others, which includes sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world and with love to succor those in need. It is my hope that we will all come to know and love our Lord through obedience to his word sufficiently to qualify for inclusion in the blessed circle of those who have heard of and believed his precious words uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane, his last night in mortality. And this is life eternal, he said, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent to which I add my witness in his holy name. Amen.